Welcome to the analysis.news. I'm Greg Wilpert. On Sunday, October 30th, Brazilians elected Luiz Inácio da Silva, also known as Lula, for a third non-consecutive term as president, ousting the right-wing incumbent Jair Bolsonaro. The vote was one of Brazil's narrowest votes, with Lula getting 50.9% and Bolsonaro 49.1% of the vote. This is an election of many firsts, the first time a president was elected for a third non-consecutive term, the largest voter turnout, and the closest winning margin. Many, Brazil's, uh, many Brazil observers feared and continue to fear that Bolsonaro will not recognize the outcome. 24 hours after the results were announced, he still has not conceded, although it looks like he might do so very soon. Leading up to the vote, he continuously uh, threatened to not recognize the results, saying that the Lula camp would eng engage in fraud. However, there's no fraud, no fraud evidence uh, so far, and if anything, it is Bolsonaro who might be accused of manipulating the vote. Joining me to discuss what this outcome means for Brazil is Alex Huchuli. He's a writer, researcher, and translator based in Sao Paulo, Brazil, and is host of the Alfheim Bunga, Bunga podcast. Also, he is the co-author of the 2021 book, The End of the End of History. Thanks for joining me, Alex. Thanks for having me. As I mentioned, um, Bolsonaro has not conceded yet, even though many of his key supporters have admitted that Lula won, and we think that he's going to concede very soon in the next uh, couple of hours or so. But um, how does it look like uh, in terms of moving forward? Will, it, will Lula be able to in, uh, participate in the inauguration as expected in January? I mean, there was a lot of talk about a possible coup even if, um, uh, if uh, Bolsonaro doesn't uh, accept it. Now, it seems like that might not happen. Uh, give us an analysis as to why that hasn't happened and what we might expect uh, going forward just in terms of the transition of power. Right. Well, I guess we have two surprises, and to a certain extent, they're in a bit of contradiction to each other. One is that the result was a lot tighter than expected, a lot tighter than was expected months ago, it was a lot tighter than was expected one month ago, it was a lot tighter than it was expected even maybe a couple of days ago. At the same time, it's been remarkably smooth. I mean, we're only... Um, you know, 24 hours or less actually in from when the, uh, the results were announced. But there has been an abiding fear, not just about what happens if Bolsonaro wins, but what happens if Bolsonaro loses, that he'll refuse to ref uh, accept the election result, that he'll go as far as perhaps even trying to mount a coup. Now, I haven't been uh, one of those who thought that there would be a successful coup, in part because he doesn't have the establishment backing to do that. Um, previous Brazilian coups, you know, if to think about 1964, um, had a large swathe of, of the establishment backing, a real credible leftist threat, which uh, Lula and the Workers' Party are not, um, and uh, United States support. And uh, already it, it's been a while that Joe Biden has said, we'll move quickly to recognize the winner. Um, so it's a, it's a rare occasion in Latin America where the U.S. Is, works to <laughs> works to recognize a democratically elected leader against um, a sort of far right uh, politician um, with uh, with the designs on, on mounting a coup. So um, w why has this happened? Well, I think firstly, Lula has mounted a very broad coalition, um, which he has spent a long time doing over the past months, um, sewing up alliances, 
the most evident example of that is his vice president, uh, Gerald uh, Alckmin, who was, uh, maybe people will remember back to the mid-2000s, was uh, Lula's opponent in the second round in 2006. And, you know, he was held as the enemy, really, um, you know, kind of pro-business, neoliberal, uh, center-right, and uh, now is very much part of Lula's camp, having left his old party. And this sort of attitude goes across the board. So one of the other presidential candidates, Simone Tebit, was brought in to support his candidacy. She appeared in certain ads um, calling for voters to vote for Lula. Uh, And there's probably meetings behind the scenes also with the military saying, listen, I'm going to come in and um, I'll be hands off with you guys as long as you're hands off with me. And, uh, And that seems to have been enough. So I think... Part of what the um, initiative behind cobbling together this um, broad front against Bolsonaro has been, one, to get elected, but I think secondly, and perhaps more importantly, to prevent any coup against Lula should should he be elected, to have enough, um, yeah, to have enough backing from powerful sections in Brazilian society. Now, the vote was very close, but it seems like um, uh, the... uh, the one that actually, as I mentioned in the intro, who really played fast and loose with electoral rules was actually Bolsonaro and certainly not the Lula camp. There were accusations of vote buying, voter suppression, disinformation campaigns, and abuse of state spending. How serious do you think those accusations were and what impact do you think they might have had in skewing the vote and making it much more uh, close of an election than it otherwise would have been? Very serious and uh, definitely closer. Now, I think there's various ways to look at this, and well, specifically two different ways to look at this election. On the one hand, it's one that Lula should have won easily. It's one where there's a massive anti-incumbency wave across Latin America and indeed around the world, just because the economic conditions are such that any incumbent government will struggle to get reelected. Um, there's a widespread uh, hatred even of, of the political establishment. And so it's very hard for an incumbent to, to remain in place. Also, Bolsonaro is has been very unpopular. He's been a terrible president, even on, on his own terms, or at least under the terms of uh, the usual sort of right-wing populace. He's, deve- he's delivered very little. In fact, that's part of the reason that a lot of the establishment broke with him, is that he wasn't even able to deliver the um, sort of privatizations, for example, that they wanted. So, uh, And there was the, the whole management of the pandemic, where he was not just a denial- denialist, but he uh, which, you know, for example, Trump toyed with, but ultimately, um, you know, there was some state response, whereas in, in Brazil, Bolsonaro actively um, stopped buying vaccines. He was offered them, uh, rejected the offers. And then when there was a, an attempt at vaccine purchases, there was graft involved. Um, so all those uh, all those elements made the whole Bolsonaro presidency um, terrible, even on its own terms, let alone for many other people. So you think, well, that should mean that Lula should win easily. On the other hand, there are uh, there's a very strong incumbency bias. So Brazilian presidents tend to be reelected. They have the whole arsenal of the state at their disposal to whether it's using, for example, the the air force to fly around and visit places, which is kind of the most. Um, sort of basic and not so impactful element of it, all the way to opening the state coffers. Now, Bolsonaro has done that in a completely unprecedented manner, spent 
hundreds of billions of reais, um, so tens, uh, several tens of billions of U.S. dollars, um, on effectively pork barrel spending uh, directed to allies via secret budget, all um, dodgy, indeed illegal, um, unconstitutional, uh, as well as various other measures, really out of desperation, things which you wouldn't politically want to do, but, for example, raising the level of cash transfers to the poor, um, which did seem to make some impact on, on the levels of support for him amongst uh, the, the bottom income earners, as well as various other things. For example, intervening in the uh, trying to intervene in the pricing policy of Petrobras and specifically uh, reducing taxes on energy so as to, as to kind of lessen the impact of, of, infl- of energy price inflation. So all these things certainly had had an impact, and it was all quite targeted, often looking at t- specific groups. So, for example, there were some sub- subsidies to taxi drivers and to truck drivers, um, so really targeting key constituencies. That certainly bolstered his support, and that was visible in the polls as we got closer to Election Day. Um, so when you take all that into account, there's also an element to which you can say, well, actually, it's a pretty good thing Lula won. It was uh, he had the, very much the, the cards stacked against him. And actually, the most recent aspect of this is uh, a, a really scandalous attempt at vo- voter suppression, which happened yesterday. And I think everybody who's following the election closely yesterday was glued to their screens, whether big or small, trying to figure out exactly what was going on. What happened, just to summarize, is that... Um, federal highway police were carrying out stop and searches uh, across the country, and especially in the Northeast, which votes which heavily favors uh, heavily favors Lula, uh, as a way to dissuade people from voting, stop people getting to voting booths, or, or maybe uh, only having them get there after polls had closed. And this was happening across um, various different cities, and this was. Uh, against the uh, a mandate from the top electoral court saying you can't do these stops and stop and searches on election day. Uh, not only did the head of the, the Federal Highway Police um, say that he wasn't going to respect that mandate, he also uh, called for voters to vote for Lula, for, excuse me, to vote for Bolsonaro the day before the election. It was then revealed that all of this was planned from within the presidential palace. So this was a very deliberate attempt at voter suppression. And yet, it didn't work. Perhaps it had an effect. Now, we don't know what the effect of that was. Did it uh, dissuade 10,000 voters, tens of thousands of voters, hundreds of thousands of voters, up to maybe 3 million voters? I saw that figure uh, bandied about. It's hard to know, and maybe the uh, result would have been less close had, uh, you know, had, had voters been able to transit much more freely to, to voting booths. Uh, we don't really know. What is interesting to remark, I guess, just to roll back to what we were previously talking about, about the absence of a, of a coup attempt or um, not, you know, his refusal to accept the election results, is that this looks like to have been Bolsonaro's last roll of the dice. So rather than contesting the election after having lost, it seems that this attempted voter suppression was his one roll of the dice. And it's interesting that as serious as that voter suppression was, it was not so dramatic that it really paralyzed the whole country or something like that, right? So it seems that he only had buy-in. He had buy-in, obviously, from this police chief, the the Fed of the Federal Highway Police, but didn't have buy-in, perhaps, from police forces across the country or even, you know, the highway police from across the country um, to carry out these sorts of stop and searches everywhere. Now, we don't know. Maybe he didn't want to go too far. We don't know exactly know what 
what the what the thinking was there. But it seems, in retrospect, knowing that Bolsonaro has now um, been leaned on enough by allies to say, listen, we're not going to back you in any sort of coup attempt or anything like that or any violent litigation of the election results, that that was his roll of the dice. That was his attempt at a, you know, at a push of some sort, I guess, effectively. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess with all that in mind, you know, th- how do you measure the question of, um, whether this was an election that Lula underperformed in and won narrowly or um, did very well against the odds and, and performed a sort of miracles. I think it's kind of both at once. You know, I think it's no one other than I think this we can conclude on and we can I mean, certainly agree upon um, is that no one other than Lula could have won this election. Uh, any other whether left wing or establishment forces that were put forward um, never gained the sort of support levels that Lula gained. Um, and I don't think anybody would have been able to put together the sort of broad front that Lula did um, to see through this electoral victory. And it's a good thing for it. That, that brings me actually to the next question, which is, you know, Brazil seems to be quite divided um, between the Bolsonaro camp and the Lula camp. And um, I mean, first of all, the question is, first of all, do you, would you agree with that characterization? And if so, why do you think it is so divided at the moment? Uh, I mean, there's been uh, a lot of talk about, you know, people uh, that is in the Bolsonaro camp just spewing real venom towards Lula. Uh, and of course, legitimately, lots of people being also very worried about, uh, you know, a second uh, Bolsonaro term. Uh, what's going on? I mean, is it, uh, is there, what, what's, what's, what's the, yeah, and I, I mean, I think it's important to say that, you know, Brazil's probably not divided 50-50, but what it is divided is maybe 30-30 and then uh, a bunch in the middle. So what you have is Bolsonaro's hardcore, right? Um, his or, or at least a certain base of maybe 30% of the population, of which um, maybe 15% are the real hardcore, uh, very authoritarian in favor of a military coup and so on. But you have that 30%. Um, on the other hand, you have what is you know, been the only real ideological pole in Brazilian society, at least until uh, Bolsonarismo came about, which was, you know, which, so what was operative through the 90s and 2000s and 2010s, which was PT and Pechismo, around the Workers' Party and Lula. And everything else in Brazilian politics kind of revolves around that, whether you're for the PT or you're against it. Um, It was the organizing ideological pole in Brazilian Politics, And that accounts, again, for maybe 20 or 30 percent of the population. And then you have people who kind of transit in between or, you know, neither one nor the other. And but what has happened with this so-called polarization, um, which, you know, we should be explicit about what that actually means. What it is, it's a radicalization of the right. These are not um you know, a left or even let alone a far left against a far right. It is very much a radicalization that is happening on the right with Lula on the center left um, gobbling up a lot of the rest of the center ground and making it part of his coalition. So although you have um, the usual PT supporters, I think what happens is that a lot of people disgusted by Bolsonaro ended up having to vote for Lula, even if that wouldn't have been their first choice. What it, what is interesting and why this election has been a lot closer than people expected is that there is still a lot of hatred of the Workers' Party. And so a lot of people, as crazy as this may seem um, and as kind of counterintuitive as it would be for me, but that a lot of people felt more concerned about uh, Lula's return than about a second Bolsonaro term 
Now, I think that, you know, I, I would be like, well, how could that be possible? Because Bolsonaro's uh, threats against democracy are such that, you know, whatever you might think about Lula, he is ultimately a Democrat. But um, for a lot of people, anti-pichismo, uh, as it's called, anti-workers party sentiment, which is a sort of reheated zombie form of anti-communism, um, has, uh, has still has quite a lot of force. It, you know, the Workers' Party is associated with corruption, not just in a material sense of graft, but of a deeper moral corruption, of a, of a some, somehow embodying everything that's bad and evil in, in society, um, the incorporation of people who shouldn't be incorporated into Brazilian society. Um, there's elements of racism involved in that and, and, and so on. And that, has that seems to have proved more lasting than a lot of people thought. Um, I, I say that because... You know, it's only been four years, so maybe you shouldn't be surprised. But, you know, Anchipichism was such a strong force from 2015 to 2018, which saw President Juma Rousseff deposed mass street protests against the Workers' Party and Bolsonaro elected very much as the embodiment of Anchipichismo. Um, it's just that the past four years have been so chaotic that maybe we were led to think that a large section of the Brazilian populace would be like, well, let's forget all those uh, old hatreds like this Bolsonaro guy has to go. And in fact, um, those old hatreds uh, seem to have remained much more strongly than some have thought, perhaps. Hmm. Now, <clears throat> this actually also gets to the next point, which is, um, you know, exactly what we can expect from uh, Lula going forward. I mean, um, as you mentioned, he, I mean, he, he, he certainly has a very solid base of support, but he's moved very much to the center by choosing Eichmann as his vice presidential candidate, um, and uh, and clearly, as you mentioned earlier, that uh, the uh, there's parts of the establishment that are now supporting Lula. Um, talk a little bit about well, what parts of the establishment are supporting Lula, and what parts will continue to support Bolsonaro, and what that might mean for uh, for a future uh, uh, Lula presidency. Well, let's deal with Bolsonaro first because it's a little bit simpler. The sections of the establishment that have been kind of genuine backers of his, not those who, um, you know, instrumentally voted for him or backed him in 2018, um, but the ones who have really kind of stuck with him, they tend to be um, people from agribusiness um, and from certain retailers as well. Um, so you've got this clownish figure um, who is the owner of... Uh, of uh, Havan, which is a, a chain of stores, um, who always wears like a green and yellow suit, you know, in the colors of Brazil, um, and you know, donated you know millions to Bolsonaro's campaign. So there's people like that who re who remain kind of hardcore, uh, you know, kind of hardcore basis of his support, uh, who would, um, you know, support a military coup or some kind of rupture with democracy were it to come to that. Um, but beyond that, I think our other sections of the elite are far more kind of promiscuous and opportunistic, and they rode Bolsonaro's coattails while it served them uh, and, you know, dropped it when, when they didn't. And that applies both to economic interests, whether it's industrialists or finance, um, agribusiness, um, or, you know, political sections of the, of the political class, uh, parts of, other parts of the establishment as well. Now, who has backed Lula in this as part of this democratic front? Often not even backing Lula in name, but really making statements in favor of democracy and the rule of law, which let it be known very clearly uh, what side they were on in this election, at least. And that is 
I guess, obviously the cultural establishment, who would obviously be more kind of progressive-leaning anyway. Um, but you also have the kind of the legal establishment, um, parts of the political establishment as well. And, um, and then in terms of uh, economic interests, leading industrialists and financiers have all signed open letters in favor of democracy and the rule of law, again, tipping their hand towards, towards Lula. Um, and I think the way to read that is that that is a temporary truce in class warfare from above. Um, or rather, it's a grasping for a sort of stability after the Bolsonaro experiment has kind of blown up in their faces. Because ultimately, they decided that Bolsonaro was bad for business, and he is. Uh, whether that is whether you think about that in terms of exports to Europe, where uh, the European Union doesn't want to or you know, threatens to um, impose sanctions if Brazil doesn't stop uh, deforestation of the Amazon, or whether it's just the general political instability, which uh, isn't necessarily good for financial markets. So that decision, that you know, that realization that Bolsonaro was bad for business, kind of led them to 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 back Lula. Um, and, but it's a backing which is not going to be extended throughout Lula's term in office. That's important to to recognize. At the same time, Lula's government will not be a PT government. I mean, that's the PT's party president who said that herself. This will not be a PT government. This is going to be a government led by Lula, but made up of various other forces. Uh, Simone Tebici, who I already mentioned, who um, is center-right, even, you know, right, if we want to say that. Um, she's going to be a part of his government. So there's, it's going to be um, very politically broad and inclusive, <laughs> which is to say, you know, inclusive of, you know, it'll be um, fairly orthodox macroeconomic management um, and uh, not very much um, if you're from the left um, to get very excited about. I think what Lula will try to do is... Um, prioritize, and he will have to prioritize, all Brazilian presidents have to prioritize because so much spending is already guaranteed, bound up um, in in kind of congressional obligations that the, the room for maneuver that a president has is actually pretty limited in terms of what you can actually do. But Lula will have to prioritize even more than that because of this coalition that he's assembled. And we'll have to focus on things like um, increased social spending, um, trying to resolve once again hunger, which he had resolved uh, previously as president, but which has now returned uh, to Brazil, and he'll be very keen to, you know, to deal with that. So, you know, increasing the, the levels of cra cash transfers, but nothing structural is going to happen. No very serious reforms, and Lula will have to tread carefully too, because it is a Congress which is. Um, perhaps even toxic, if I can put it in such strong terms, um, but one in which uh, Bolsonaro's PL party and other associated parties have a very strong bench um, such that they would even be able to impeach Lula should it, you know, should it come to that if uh, Lula doesn't give them what they want. Hmm. Yeah, actually, that was what I was going to ask about next, because, I mean, after all, uh, yeah, as you mentioned, he has no majority in Congress. Uh, he has this, this very centrist vice president, and then there's the you know the coup doesn't even a real military coup doesn't seem to be necessary if we look at what happened to Dilma Rousseff, um, who was you know uh, ousted through an impeachment proceeding, even though it was on completely ridiculous accusations. Um, I mean, if if Lula were to try to steer a, a course that is slightly you know, to the left, I mean, wouldn't that be, that seems like that would be a major danger that he would uh, be in a similar situation as Rousseff, especially considering that he's got also a similar president, a vice president uh, serving next to him. Uh, what do you think? 
Yeah, no, absolutely. I don't think um, there will be any. Lula will be very conscious of this. I mean, he'll be, he's very good at winning over support in Congress, of shaking the right hands, of making the right deals. Um, but that's and and you know him knowing that will make him reluctant anyway, even if he had intentions otherwise to you know make any kind of shift to the left. Um, that is not to be expected. And his whole discourse leading up to this has been very much, I'm coming back to put the house in order, to save democracy and to put Brazil back on the path that it was on. Now, that path wasn't very good, it's important to say. Uh, you know, it, there might be things like um, the cuts and the defanging of organs that, for example, prevent deforestation, those will be re-empowered, reinvested, and so on. Uh, funding for uh, scientific research and for, um, for, for universities will be bumped up again after they were savagely cut by Bolsonaro. So all the basic things that should be part of any devel developmental program and that a state should try to do will be um, will be kind of brought back on course, I think. Um, so it's not going to be the slash and burn of the of the Bolsonaro years, and it's not going to be the slash and burn either of of the Temer period in office after after the the, the illegitimate ousting of, of Juma Rousseff. So you know we're talking about 2016, 17, 18 here. Um, so it's not going to be that, but at the same time, there's not going to be any big sort of developmental plan put in place. It's really just um, undoing a lot of the more recent damage that's been done, and probably not even all of it, uh, undoing a lot of the worst of the neoliberal reforms um, put in place both by Temer and, and, by, um, and by Bolsonaro especially. But uh, that's basically it. It's, uh, it's a return to a status quo ante. It's a return to 2015 at best. What would that mean then for the grassroots that supports them, particularly the more radical sectors? I mean, would it be possible that they start, you know, turning against Lula, perhaps because it's going to be such a moderate government? Uh, and I mean, it's we're not just talking about the PT. You've got also the, the you know the landless uh, peasants movement and other lots of other. I mean, the grassroots in Brazil, you know, tends to be pretty active. I have a feeling. Um, isn't that going to be uh, quite a difficult threading of the needle then uh, between you know this grassroots on the one hand and then the kind of the establishment that he has to take into account uh, on the other hand? Maybe, but I wouldn't bet on it. Uh, you know, the kind of a lot of the grassroots has been very loyal to the PT, um, even during the second Juma government, where she carried out an outrageous turn to the right, imposing austerity. Uh, she was accused of effectively, you know, an, an electoral uh, sort of electoral fraud of basically being elected on one program and doing the exact opposite. And even then, you know, they, there was you know sections of the grassroots PT support didn't break from the party didn't really protest. Um, so I don't see that happening, especially not in the circumstance in which you have, you know, the, the fascist threat to point to and say, well, you know, are you really going to, you know, make moves against us if you know what the alternative is? Um, so that's a certain kind of blackmail that PT leadership can play against its, uh, against its grassroots. Now, it's probably worth asking what happens more broadly than that, because uh, there's not going to be a resolution to Brazil's crisis political, economic, and social, that's going to continue festering. And as a consequence, we don't know how the Brazilian people will respond. Um, it's, a, you know, it's worth recalling that 
we're coming up to a decade anniversary from the June 2013 uprising, which was a huge, spontaneous mass uh, revolt, which we know what it led to. It, it ended up being captured by the right, uh, wield, you know, wielding a very uh, moralistic anti-corruption agenda, which targeted the Workers' Party and so on, which all led to Bolsonaro. But I don't think that story was predetermined in any way. What it in fact was almost a kind of proto-revolutionary moment, which ended up um, being captured by the right because it was better placed to respond to it at that moment. Um, what would happen should a similar thing happen again under PT government? We don't know. Um, but unfortunately, uh, things have been both in terms of organized uh, popular groups as well as um, in just in terms of um, the working class as a whole has been relatively kind of quiescent over the over the recent period, probably exhausted from so much turbulence over the past decade. So, you know, everyone's kind of expecting Lula to come in, impose some stability, make things less, a little bit less bad, and certainly a lot less crazy than they have been. Um, but I don't think there's higher expectations than that. Um, but again, just to underline, the global and Brazilian economic circumstances are really not favorable. So um, there's not going to be the possibility of growth buying people off. And I don't mean to put that in a cynical in cynical terms. I just mean very simply that there is not going to be growth and the proceeds of growth um, to distribute around. And that will mean that there will be no um, significant rise in living standards, for example. And we don't know where that will lead. Hmm. Okay. Well, we're going to leave it there. I'm speaking to Alex Ochuli, writer, researcher, and translator based in Sao Paulo, Brazil, and host of the Auf Auf hey Bunga Bunga podcast. Thanks again, Alex. Just Bunga cast for short. <laughs> Bunga cast. Okay, that's much easier. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks again, Alex, for having joined me today. Thank you. It was a pleasure. And thank you, our audience, for joining us at the analysis.news. If you like our videos and podcasts, please make sure to visit the analysis.news website and make a donation there so we can continue to provide this service. And also, don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel and or to the podcast. <laughs>